This is episode number 555 with Kenji, head of data science at Scouts Consulting Group. Today's episode is kindly brought to you by Udemy Business, the platform that powers your business with learning. And by Unlocked, Z by HP's short film made specifically for data scientists. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. We're fortunate to be joined today by the exceptionally popular data science content creator, Ken G. Ken is the head of data science at Sports Consulting Group, an analytics consulting company that specializes in sports data. So Ken improves the performance of athletes and teams by analyzing data collected on them. To the public, however, Ken is best known for his YouTube channel, which he uses to help his 190,000 subscribers with tutorial and commentary focused videos that make the fields of data science and machine learning accessible to everyone. He's also renowned for starting the ubiquitous 66 days of data social media hashtag, which has helped countless people create the habit of learning and working on data science projects every day. On top of all that, he's the host of the Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast and is an adjunct professor at DePaul University in Chicago. He holds a master's in computer science with a concentration in AI and machine learning. Today's episode should be broadly appealing whether you're already an expert data scientist or just getting started. In this episode, Ken details what sports analytics is and specific examples of how he's made an impact on the performance of athletes and teams with it, where the big opportunities lie in sports analytics in the coming years, his four-step process for how someone should get started in data science today, how the 66 days of data hashtag can supercharge your capacity as a data scientist, whether you're just getting started or are already an established practitioner. And he talks about his favorite tools for software scripting, as well as for production code development. All right, you ready for this fun episode? Let's go. Ken G on the Super Data Science Podcast. This has been a long time coming for the podcast. Um, where in the world are you calling in from? So I am on Oahu near Honolulu. Mm. So got a pretty nice day out here. I'm a couple hours behind you though. So, uh, you know, I think it's your evening almost It's I'm just starting <laughs> my day. I'm about to eat lunch. It's possible for people watching the YouTube version of the podcast that the sun will set while we're recording. It will definitely not happen for you. Um, Hawaii is beautiful. I've only been there once, went with my family for two weeks and we had an amazing time. Uh, we were on the big Island for a while and then we were on Kauai. There was a historic, um, thunderstorm while we were on Kauai that took out all the power and there were thunderclaps in the middle of the night. So loud that not only did they wake me up, which is super unusual, but I was laughing out of like sheer fear like i didn't like it was such a loud sound that i was like laughing like inappropriately that i was just like like what's going on um but uh yeah hawaii hawaii absolutely beautiful place yeah 
I would love to go there all the time, but it is not close to mainland US. So especially for me on the East Coast, flying from New York, it was it, it was quite a haul. Yeah, well, there's a there's direct flights from a lot of East Coast cities, actually. So Washington, D.C., Massachusetts. I, that's not a city, but you get the idea. <laughs> I, I, I can't remember what the airport, what city the airport's in. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's not easy, but you get a nice seat. You, you sleep the whole time and you wake up in paradise, right? You do. It is paradise. Um, and you haven't always been in paradise. Is that right? No, I was... I was in Chicago for about five years before this. It was, I actually really liked it. I think for three months of the year, Chicago is the top five city in the world. It's just right. once it gets cold, it is not a top five city in the world. <laughs> right. Um, and so how did you, how did you pick that? How did you, were you like, did you do some kind of uh, cluster analysis or any other kind of, quantitative analysis of where would the most wonderful place in the entire world I could live be? And then you were like, okay, it turns out it's Oahu and now I'm here. Oh, actually it was an economic decision. So Mm. I was, when I was in Chicago, I, you know, I I lived by myself there for a little bit. I was looking to probably move somewhere else with the nature of the world. And, you know, in the kind of pandemic world we live in now, I could do my work from anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that if I could do my work from anywhere, I might as well go somewhere where, where it's very temperate and I can play golf every week and do those types of things Uh, around the same time as I was looking to move. My parents actually bought a a retirement home in Hawaii and they weren't going to live in it. So I told them being being a really good son, I would go look (laughs) after the place (laughs) until they wanted to move in. And after they decided to move in, I started looking for houses. But to be honest, the real estate prices in Hawaii went up like 30% during the pandemic because everyone was taking their San Francisco salary and essentially Mm -hmm. moving out here. And yeah, it's perfectly fine. I've been with my parents for a couple months. I'm now looking to to buy a place either here or somewhere back on the mainland. So it was a it was a really yeah, it was just like a really nice situation. I'm super grateful to my parents that they would let me that they would let me do something like this. And it's been a, an incredible, you know, year and a half, two year vacation for me. Might be time to, to get back to the real world. But yeah, I mean, that, that's that's sort of how it came about. I was like, look, uh, you know, the, who knows what's going to happen in the pandemic? I'd be foolish not to take my parents up on uh, on yeah. either very cheap or free rent, save up mm-hmm. to buy a really nice house when I when I decide to make that that jump. And mm-hmm. it I, I could not be more happy with with the decision to pursue pursue this little foray for the last uh, for the last kind of chapter of my life. Awesome. <laughs> it sounds great. If anything, you know, the pandemic, one of the lessons for me was that, you know, family and being able to see them, we can't take that for granted. And so yeah. that you were actually able to spend a, a disproportionate amount of your time in the pandemic with them. I think that that is special and no doubt a lot of wonderful memories from that time. All right. Yeah. So, um, we hadn't met before filming this show, but I feel like I know you from your YouTube channel and I've been watching so many videos. We were introduced by Harpreet Zahota, who was on the Super Data Science Podcast in episode number 457. Um, he's the host of the Artists of Data Science Podcast. And um, yeah, I, I don't know how you guys connected, but you're both very well known 
in the data science world, especially in the data science content creation world. Um, yeah, well, I, I love shouting out Harpreet. I, I go on his happy hour, which is actually mm -hmm. right after we're recording this. I don't know if I'll make it today, but it's a it's a great time. I highly recommend anyone go check that out. He's also been on my podcast, Ken's Nearest Neighbors, and I've been on his podcast. So it's, you know, in my mind, one of the things I love about data science in this space is that there are so many incredible just like creators, people putting content out there. And the community is incredible. Like he recommends me to, to go on your podcast. I recommend him for a bunch of stuff. It's not like there's a competitive aspect to it, right? It's like if we're building together, if we're creating this community together, everyone wins. We all grow the pot, the whole pie. It's not like we're stealing slices from each other. Yeah, yeah. That's it's definitely not a zero-sum game. One of the really nice things about the data science field and the associated fields around it is that they are all growing so quickly and interest in them is growing so quickly that there's huge amounts of opportunity for carving out specific niches like Harpreet's podcast, Artists of Data Science. It's such a unique and wonderful niche. So yes, it's tailored to data scientists, but it's this idea of data scientists as being data scientists as being creators. Um, and so he has content not only from creative data scientists, but also just from creative writers in general, including some of the best known authors on the planet of just, you know, general books. Books, And yeah. so, yeah, what an interesting take uh, on, on a podcast theme. Um, so, yeah, super cool guy. Um, Harpreet, if you're listening, clearly you got two big fans here. Um, so speaking of content creation, you have a few followers. You have... 185,000 at the time of recording YouTube subscribers. Uh, and I am not surprised that you have so many. You have incredible content. You have practical videos on what to do to get started in data science. So you have this kind of annual series of how I would learn data science in 2022 or 2021. Um, and things like how to go from a data analyst to a data scientist. You have detailed walkthroughs of the phases of a data science project. You have suggested data science projects, something that you released shortly before uh, we recorded this episode is a really fun video on can you analyze my data better than me, where you have a starter project for people, you provide them with your results, and then you challenge your 185,000 subscribers to outperform you on that project. I think that's a super cool, uh, fun way to get people going on a project. You have suggested pathways. So, you know, should somebody do a Google data analyst certification or an IBM one? What are the differences? And you go beyond data science. So you also have general life guidance. So things like how I learned to learn seven incredible books that transform my health. And on top of all that, you also have some very amusing videos. I loved uh, and I watched from end to end, uh, I was riveted to this video of you doing data science job expectation versus reality. It's this really humorous skit that you did with Luke Barus, and you play this, uh, <laughs> this, this boss, uh, his boss on, on a data science job. Uh, I thought that was so much fun. Yeah. I, I have to give all the creative genius on that one to, to Luke. He, he has a very. I, I think in another life, he might have been a cinematographer. He has a lot of fun with <laughs> with the storytelling with images. And uh, that's something I've been working to improve. 
you know, it's funny you said that you weren't surprised that I have uh, this following. But the funny thing is, like, I am more surprised than anyone that, that <laughs> the things that I put on the internet, the stuff that I was making effectively that, that I wish I had had when I was starting out. I mean, if I really look at what I have done, it's that I've created videos that, that I wish I could have given to myself three, four or five years ago. And back then, I thought the audience for that was really small, right? But it seems like with the domain growing and the interest and a lot of the conflicting information out there, I thought it's fun for me to be able to tell my stories and give my perspective. I mean, something that I try not to do, and it might not sound like it from the titles, but I like to speak from my experience. And I'm never, there's no ground truth necessarily, right? I'm trying to tell what I've seen and I reserve the right to be wrong because I find that I'm wrong a lot more than, than I even thought I would be. Uh, <laughs> but that's a beautiful thing about creating and storytelling is I, I don't look at myself as an authority. I only look at myself as a reflection of the conversations that I've had and the experiences that I've had. And so hopefully that journey is something that resonates with people. And, and I guess apparently it has over time. Yeah. And I read, as I was doing research for this episode, I read an interesting story that you got started with YouTube because you had a class project where you had the option of either, was it like you could present live in class or you could record a video. So you went for the recorded video option. And then I don't know how much later, months later, or years later, you came back and it had 5,000 views. And you were like, oh, wow, people are just interested in stuff you could create. And that kind of got you going. Yeah, I mean, that's almost exactly how it happened. I I did this project. I still remember it's my first video that I have uploaded to the channel. And it's comparing LSTM and GRU. Um, oh, my goodness. Uh, uh, recurrent nodes neural in, in a recurrent neural network yeah, when yeah. predicting cryptocurrency prices. Mm. And it, it was right, I think, during like the first big crypto boom when everyone was super stoked on it. And it was like maybe with the second one, right? And I, I guess there was a lot of traction there. And I don't think it was even 5,000 views. It was maybe 1,000, 2,000. I was like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. And it's funny, now one of my videos does that in the first couple hours, right? <laughs> and you know that idea, though, that, hey, this is a platform that I could communicate with other people. This is a platform where I can storytell. This is a platform also where I could improve some of the things that I needed to work on in myself. So... I've told this uh, story, I think, a couple of times, but it's something I love sharing is that when I started making videos outside of, of that one where I was going through a presentation, I did it in order to improve the way that I articulate, improve my, my diction and the way that I speak. I did an interview with a company mm. where I had to read a prompt off of a screen and respond to it. And there was no human that I was talking to. It was just talking into a camera. When I talk to leaders in data science, I notice they all make time for learning and encourage the same of their teams. But with your actual everyday work to do, all day trainings aren't possible for most of us. That's why an on-demand learning platform like Udemy Business makes sense. With Udemy Business, you can access over 500 cutting edge data science courses taught by real world subject matter experts and validated by other learners' real time reviews. Amongst these 500 courses, you'll find my own Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course, as well as dozens of mega popular courses from other super data science instructors. 
To hear the latest on the state of data science in the workplace and discover how you can democratize data science learning in your teams through Udemy Business, check out the new video series called Insights on Demand, Diving into Data Science. To watch this series and learn more, visit business.udemy.com SDS. That's business.udemy.com SDS. And I watched it back and I remember thinking to myself, why would anyone ever hire this person of this video oh. that I just saw? Right. It, I was a robot. I, I didn't have any emotion to me. I, I couldn't convey the information clearly. And I thought, wow, I could convey information that I know about because I just had this experience moving from management consulting into data science. And I can also work on improving this skill of mine, this storytelling, this ability to speak, this ability to put together a cohesive message. And then eventually that led into improving my ability to make videos and 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 use different camera angles and do all this other stuff. So that one little thing sparked this entire sort of avalanche of me trying to improve myself and improve my content, but also convey value and tell stories and hopefully create some meaning or, or some understanding around this domain of data science that was quickly evolving on on YouTube and on and on a platform. So it was a uh, it was an awesome sort of fun project and experience. And like, I never would have guessed it, it would turn into what it has now. It's super exciting. It's really nice to be able to hear that kind of origin story for people who are getting started, probably not only in content creation, but kind of any new pursuit out there. How at some point you just start, there's just some first step and you don't know how it's going to go. And you might be, you know, doing because you're you're you have a robotic apparent voice uh in these videos that you're reviewing and then you're like well there's an opportunity here to improve and you take those first steps and then wow you're now you've got 185,000 subscribers probably far more by the time this episode actually airs um so in terms of today when you're thinking about what content you'd like to create what's your process how do you What's your inspiration behind the videos that you create? And, you know, do you have, do you follow a set process? Are you like, I'm going to create something no matter what, once a week, I'm going to create a video once a week, or do you just kind of do it when inspiration hits? Yeah. What's, what's kind of your process around creativity as well as production? So that's something that's in motion right now. I'm, I've, at the beginning of the year, I've been sort of reflecting on how often I want to create content. I used to make videos every week before, you know, even before that, when I was growing the most, I was making three videos a week. So I was doing a sort of commentary video on Mondays, Wednesday, I would record an interview. And then Friday, I would review someone's project. Right. And I, I, it was fun. I enjoyed it. But I also realized that I needed to make more cohesive content in, the, in order to grow and, and maximize what I was working on. And mm -hmm. I also wanted to just have as much fun with the content and not burn out. That's like always my goal, right? It's very easy if you feel like you have to do something over a long period of time to burn out and get fatigued. So I slowed down to around a one video made each week. This year, I started working with an editor, which has been unbelievable in terms of my ability to produce. But oh, I also yeah. have felt like, you know, to a certain extent, I want to do more in terms of creativity, I want to do more in terms of the storytelling aspects. And I don't know if I can do that on a week to week cadence. So I'm thinking about stretching right. 
the time periods out a little bit more just to make it so I can feel like I'm producing the best possible things that I can put out there. In terms of video ideation, I have a list of, you know, 150, 200 video ideas that I could make at any given point in time. More of that is about thinking about what I want to make, what I'm excited about creating, and then using data to substantiate if that would be interesting oh. to the audience. So over the last couple of years, I've done significantly more polling. So YouTube has a great community tab where you can ask polls or you can ask questions. And so I've been using that quite a bit to make sure that the content is matching what the audience is interested in. I, I will say, you know, if we're thinking about getting started with data science and, and that sort of niche, I don't know if there's many more videos that I could make about that that would tell a different story. Right. So I'm sort of making this progression into telling more relevant stories to actual data scientists or people that aren't necessarily related to data science. So I made a video recently about Zillow and what happened where effectively mm -hmm. they got into the iBuying business and it failed absolutely miserably. Was that a machine learning problem or was that a management problem? Like mm -hmm. that's something that resonates with a lot of different audiences. I also did one on this incredible story of this guy named Bill Benter who made a reported almost a billion dollars betting on horses in Hong Kong in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. And he used a pretty simple machine learning model, but no one's ever talked about the implications of the model or how he was able to make this. And so I'm trying to create more content that sort of stretches the pipeline. So, you know, if, if someone watches my content to just get in to start and learn data science, if there isn't a next step after they become a data scientist, after they land their job, what incentive is there for them to stick around and watch more introductory content? So right. I'm trying to sort of expand the pipeline and make it interesting to, to broader audiences. And that's also really appealing to me is because I'm not, you know, I am interested in helping people start, but I'm also really interested in what's going on in the data science world. I'm really interested in the new problems that arise. And it makes me really excited to be able to make content about that as well. I love those stories that you're focusing on. Uh, so there's stories that, so like the Zillow story is something that people, a lot of people, especially in the data science community are kind of aware of. Uh, a lot of people in the tech community are aware of, and it would be interesting to be able to take a deep dive on that topic. I've seen that video come up on my feed and I've narrowly <laughs> watched it. So I was like, oh, that looks really interesting. I would love to learn more about that. And then same thing with the horse racing. That one's also come up in my feed. And um, it's, it's, again, it's something it's like, um, a human interest story isn't the right way, but it's kind of like a way, way to describe it. But, you know, there's like a, there's, there's this really compelling story to be told where data and models play a key role. So I think that's, that's a really fun niche for you to be starting to uh, dig more and more into. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think the news and whenever they're talking about these stories, there's a lack of nuance about the actual machine learning elements. And it's cool to be able to hopefully give some additional insight from a practitioner's standpoint to be able to describe what's going on either internally or with the models or whatever it might be. And there's a fun art for me of trying to make that accessible and interesting to both someone who's not a data scientist and someone who's a senior data scientist at XYZ company, right? So I absolutely love that challenge. And I love storytelling. I think I have a long, long way to go in terms of growing as a storyteller. But to me, that's as exciting as any of the data science challenges that I'm also working on. Awesome. Yeah, it's great to be specializing at that intersection. There's 
in both of those arenas as a data scientist, as well as as a storyteller, there is literally an infinite amount of depth that you could go into and an infinite amount of expertise in so many different little pieces of it. And so, yeah, by intersecting those, it's a, it sounds like a powerful combination. So I know now that you're, uh, you know, not focusing so much on the, you know, how to get started in data science videos, but <laughs> for our audience's sake, and given that those are historically some of your most popular videos, how do you recommend someone today get started in data science? I mean, I think that's a really important question. And I do, I make a video on this every year because my perspective on it changes basically every year. So historically, I would tell people just, you know, learn enough uh, coding to be able to start a project and get your hands dirty as quickly as possible. And I think that that can work. I think hands-on work and projects are one of the most important things you can do. They're one of the things that allows you to make the most growth in a short period of time. But it also isn't necessarily the best way to start because it can be unbelievably intimidating. And I think in the past, I wasn't being quite as, I was maybe being a little too hard on people that they couldn't get through that initial phase. So I think the first thing that's really important is some meta learning around what data science is. What does it entail? What tools do you use? What pathway do most people take to learn this, this, uh, the discipline? And so something as easy as going through like four or five different online courses, not taking the courses, but just looking at the curriculum and seeing right. how they structure it and what they teach. Just understanding, hey, these are the domains. You're going to need XYZ math. You're going to need to learn these concepts. These algorithms seem to be popping up a lot. Okay, I can make sort of this meta-learning roadmap for myself to be able to approach this domain. Next, I think it's really important to learn how to, to program, right? I, I think coding allows you to apply a lot of the math that you'll eventually need to learn as well, right? I look at it as, you know, if uh, if I'm trying to remember something, right? If, I, if I'm trying to take notes or whatever it is, it's a lot easier if I have a pencil to, to write it down and to understand it and to solve problems than if I don't have any tools to apply the information that I'm learning. So I, I have always, and I recommend this, it's not for everyone. Some people are like, you have to learn statistics first, yada, yada, yada. It's just not how I see it. But if you can code, again, you can apply all this math. If you want to understand how randomness works, you can create randomness using code and look how mm -hmm. it creates distributions or whatever it does, right? Mm -hmm. So to me, just the, the ability to use tools to be able to build things is something that's been integral in, in, in my life as a data scientist and, and as a lifelong learner. So that's generally the next step that I would recommend. After that, I would then historically say jump right into projects, right? This time I learned my lesson. So the next thing I would recommend doing is actually reviewing other people's projects, looking through the code, oh. understanding how they work. And something you can really cool you can do is you can just copy and paste from other people's projects and tinker with it, right? So you, you run this function and you tweak it a little bit and see what happens, right? That's a really low risk, low effort way to understand the mechanisms that are going on and to be able to digest it and, and evaluate it further. If you really want, what you can do is take someone else's project and expand on it, right? That could be your first project. It doesn't have to be this completely new and novel thing. You could just be taking someone else's work, giving them credit, of course, and then iterating it a little bit, ask, you know, asking additional questions of the data with this framework in place, and then solving it in that way. After that is when I think you should really get your hands dirty with the data. 
start building projects, start exploring, start reading research and applying it into projects. And then that that sort of iteration loop keeps going with with the getting learning, meta-learning, getting your hands dirty and reviewing other people's work. Just keep going through that path. And I, I haven't gotten off of that hamster wheel yet uh, because this domain is something where you are constantly, effectively always learning. There is no place where you're like, oh, I'm done. That's it. I've learned mm-hmm. everything there is to know because mm-hmm. tomorrow there will be a new tool. Tomorrow there will be an innovation in the technology and the algorithms that we use. So, you know, if you establish those habits and if you get into that mindset, it can be very valuable for longevity in this career and for your overall success. I love that. Great tips. So meta learning about what the field is, learning how to program, reviewing others' projects, and then digging into your own projects. Exactly. Um, And repeat. And repeat. Exactly. Um, That makes so much sense. And yeah, I love that approach. And it's nice that because you do this every year, you get time to reflect probably through the year, you realize "Ah, that advice I gave Maybe, you know, that isn't the best. It'd be interesting to see how that continues to evolve in years to come. But this is, uh, I think that this is an awesome process. And I agree with uh, everything about it. I think this idea of um, seeing what data science is about first, that's actually uh, Josh Starmer, whose episode aired last week. He described that same kind of thing when he's researching a uh, something that he wants to learn for a new video. He goes through the first few pages of Google results, opens every single one of those in a new tab, and then just kind of skims them. And just like you described, okay, what are these words that keep recurring? Those are probably important. Um, So I think that that makes a lot of sense. And then also, I loved your point about learning to program as one of the first steps, because then probability, statistics, machine learning, it's so much more fun and interesting when you can see it. When you're not just reading about it in a book, um, so I, yeah, I think programming that kind of interactivity is huge. Um, I think it's very helpful for learning, and um, uh, and yeah, very very helpful for understanding how something works in practice. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Unlocked by Z by HP. Unlocked is an interactive short film made specifically for data scientists. The movie is broken up into four segments, each with a unique data science challenge covering data visualization, text analysis, audio signal processing, and computer vision. Each challenge is beginner friendly, and if you submit your answers via the website, you are entered for a chance to win one of 10 ZBook studio laptops and a free trip to the Kaggle World Championships. Watch the movie and take on the challenges today at hp.com slash unlocked. Want to do it with someone? Stop by the hackathon on March 12th, where we'll work through the projects together. There will be speakers, data science panels, live tutorials, and prizes. RSVP and details in the show notes. Well, you know, I, I get criticized. A lot of people are like, oh, you're undermining the importance of math. And I'm like, no, math, statistics, calculus, linear algebra, they're all very important. But if I were to go back and learn those subjects, I would probably understand them so much better if all of those concepts that I was doing, I was implementing in code, right? Because I, at least for me, that's hands. That's as hands-on as you're effectively going to get with that rather than like pen and paper. Um, and, and like you have to understand how the code works to understand how the math works and then eventually vice versa. So I, I don't know. I, I have always looked at that as like, that seems very obvious to me that 
you know, if you can apply these things, you're going to understand it better and you're going to have more ways to describe what you're doing and, and what you're working with. But, you know, that is just to say, I don't want to undermine the importance of math. It is very important, but I also don't think it needs to be learned first. I actually think it makes significantly more sense to, to learn it second. As it happens, you probably don't know this about me, Ken, but I am in the process of releasing a very, very long course uh, on the mathematical foundations of machine learning. I'm releasing it all for free on YouTube. And so all of the linear algebra playlist is complete. And in the next few weeks, the calculus playlist, playlist will be complete. And then I'll move on to probability, statistics, and computer science, algorithms and data structures, optimization, that kind of thing. And it is a uh, coding forward approach. So every single linear algebra calculus concept that we learn, you implement in code. So I show you the equations and then I'm like, here's how we make the equation in code. And then those functions that you use can be used later in the curriculum. Um, and so it can, it could actually serve, people would need to know a bit of Python uh, to get started, but if you're not familiar with PyTorch or TensorFlow or NumPy, I do kind of cover those libraries from scratch um, through the curriculum. So I am very much <laughs> in agreement with you. Um, well, I will definitely yeah. be taking that. I need to brush up on a lot of those concepts anyway. So uh, I would, yeah, <laughs> I, I would love your critical feedback on how I could be making my videos better on YouTube and getting even more traction. Um, I would love that. Um, so. Awesome. So YouTube, however, despite being a way that you make a huge impact on the world, isn't in fact your day job. So you are the head of data science at Scouts Consulting Group. So what does Scouts Consulting Group do? And what does it mean to be head of data science there? So Scouts Consulting Group is an organization that helps athletes and teams improve their performance by analyzing the data that's collected on them. So effectively, what I'm in charge of doing is helping scope projects to work with both of these athletes and teams. And we're analyzing data collected mostly by the large sports organizations. And in essence, our goal is always to help improve the probability that a team or an athlete wins. Everything is about winning. It's about performance. A lot of other applications in sports analytics are about describing outcomes, creating ROI for organizations. Our focus has been and probably will always be about creating better opportunities on the court, on the golf course, on the field, whatever it might be. And, you know, honestly, it's a, it's a lot of fun. I get to work with a lot of professional athletes. I get to work with a lot of really cool and unique sports data that for the most part is behind a paywall, which I think is fundamentally wrong, by the way. I think most organizations should completely open up their data sets. It would mm. advance almost all sports tremendously in a very rapid mm. period of time. But yeah, I mean, so the, the main sports that we've historically focused on are golf and basketball. We've obviously explored some other ones like football, baseball, et cetera. But our main clients are either athletes or teams in those two domains. So what's the idea there? So the, the idea is to literally be analyzing information and helping people like have a better golf swing or a better strategy on the course? More a strategy on the course. So our, our biggest client is the US Ryder Cup team. So if you're not familiar with, with golf or what the Ryder Cup is, the Ryder Cup is an every other year event where 
effectively the best 12 players in the US play the best 12 players in Europe. And so one of the things that the team has to consider is that of those 12 players, at least in this past year, six of the players qualified through points, through how they performed over the course of the year, and then six were picked by the captain. And so we mm. have to evaluate who would be a really good fit for the course based mm. on the course conditions, past performance, wow. like recent performance, and make those recommendations. The captain could choose to use those recommendations or not, but we are doing a quantitative analysis to evaluate those outcomes. Uh, wow. We also, you know, so that's like a fairly specific project. We also will help and go in to organizations and help them build out a research branch or, or a team of data scientists. So it might be surprising to people, but there's a lot of sports organizations outside of baseball. I think every single baseball team has an analytics program, but there's a lot of programs in other sports, basketball, football, et cetera, where they do not have effectively an infrastructure to create research, data science, analytics programs. So we'll go in, we'll talk to them about what types of projects they should work on, how they should build out a team, the five, 10 year strategy of what this should look like and get all the pieces up and running. And in that sense, the goal is to make ourselves obsolete over time. So we have this one type where we go in and we build the organization and this other type where we're going in and doing projects with a specific data. That is so cool. Um, I am fascinated by that kind of work. And so Michael Lewis has popularized course, this kind yeah, of approach Moneyball. in baseball with Moneyball, yeah. And then the subsequent feature film featuring Brad Pitt. Um, and so, yeah, so this approach, as you mentioned in baseball, is, is relatively um, fleshed out. So as you mentioned, baseball teams have caught on that there's this huge opportunity to be using data to be making better uh, player selection decisions and so it's cool to hear that um, that is starting to spread out more and more into other sports. Um, and yeah, amazing to hear that specifically for the Ryder Cup, you're able to make that kind of direct impact. That's a really fascinating job. You must love it. Because you, I mean, you talked about playing golf uh, on weekends now that you're in Hawaii, you're able to do that regularly. I think you have a lot of athletics in your background, right? Yeah, so I, I played golf in college. I tried to play professionally for a little bit. And then I realized that I was a little bit better at analyzing golf than I was at actually playing golf. So it, it was one of those pursuit of passion things. I was wondering how I could stick with this profession or stick with this game and, and work in it. And it, it was a really unique combination of the skills that I acquired as well as my previous background working and oh, playing in the domain, right? And it, it created this nice synergy that was appealing to a lot of people. I mean, particularly in sports, domain knowledge is really important, especially when you're making the, the first level introductions or you're, or you're selling business in the early stages. I don't think we would have been able to get a lot of our work if we hadn't, my entire team hadn't all been really involved with golf and playing at a high level uh, to, to begin with. So, you, you know, sports is a really unique domain because for example, our clients, a lot of them are are golfers. A lot of them are either, you know, former golfers or 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 you know, former basketball players or whatever it is, right? And some of them are unbelievably business minded and they've taken classes, they've done whatever. And some of them, they're incredible in their domain, but they just haven't 
necessarily dedicated the time to understanding analytics or any of these things. So it's not a fault on them. It's not that they're dumb or anything, but it's that they haven't spent the time understanding and learning about like what a specific type of bar graph is, right? So you might show a business stakeholder bar graph and they get it, right? But you might show a, an athlete or a former athlete, something like this, and it's just they haven't indexed on these skills. And so we have to be really creative with how we present information, right? And it's like in any domain, like we want to use terminology and stories that are relevant with them to convey this information. And that's a huge part because nobody wants you to come in there and like talk to them like they're dumb, right? Nobody wants to feel like they're dumb when they're, they're being presented information. And, you know, again, not a single player or team or athlete that we've ever worked with what I consider like unintelligent. Like they are geniuses in their sport and effectively all of them are like really smart and like personable and, and, and easy to talk to. Mm-hmm. But there's just this like information yeah, yeah. gap because they've never been trained on this specific domain of interpreting data, right? So yeah. I, I love that that challenge. And for me, it's like fun. It's like, how do I take this really complex analysis? How do I explain a simulation, like a Monte Carlo simulation to someone who has never heard of one of these before? Right? Like I, I just love that aspect of the work. That is so cool. Um, so you've described in a way the applications and the fun parts of your job communicating, for example, when you're doing those analyses, when you're doing those Monte Carlo simulations, what kinds of tools do you use? What are your kind of go-to tools day to day? And mostly I'm just using Python and a bunch of the regular libraries there. (laughs) I am a weirdo in the sense that I prefer using spider as an IDE. A lot of people give me flack for that. I think it's because I a long time ago, the first exposure to coding I ever had was with R and R Studio. Yeah. And I like being able to see a GUI interface of what my data looks like in tabular form. So I've mm-hmm. stuck with that. If I do actual development work, I'll use VS Code. But mm-hmm. if I'm doing just pure data science, I, I quite enjoy using Spider. So if if uh you're gonna judge me for that, you're welcome to tune off at this point <laughs> in time. But... Yep. See you later, listener. That's where they all switched off. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I totally understand that. I also, um, R wasn't my first programming language, but it was the first that, it was a huge part of my life. And in that time, R Studio was uh, my IDE of choice for working with it. And so I, I do understand. I understand how you'd be into the Spider IDE. Cool, so throughout this episode, there's been a topic that's permeated it. So whether we're talking about the content that you create on your YouTube channel, whether we're talking about your process for learning, whether we talk about having lots of different skills and tools that you need at your job, there's this learning uh, theme that's permeated all the conversation on this episode. So you are behind a hashtag 66 days of data, which is perhaps the most ubiquitous hashtag used on social media associated with data science today. I see it everywhere. This is a hashtag that you created to support people in learning data science techniques. What is it? Tell us more about it. Where did it come from? And why is it so effective? Yeah, so I think we alluded to it before. But learning for me is a lifelong journey. And I think learning has to be a career long journey in data science as well. It's not like you just learn all these techniques and then you're ready to go and it stops. It's a continuing process. And it can be really overwhelming to learn 
a lot of data science concepts over any period of time. So in my mind, the best way to approach that is to habitualize learning rather than thinking of it as, you know, like checking boxes, I have to learn this concept and this concept and this concept. If we create this daily learning process or practice, we can effectively have a really long and prosperous career because we're not intimidated by how much there is to, to consume. And so 66 days of data is truly about creating great learning habits. And 66 days comes from the book by James Clear, Atomic Habits. So in mm-hmm. it, he talks about how 66 days is the average amount of time that it takes to ingrain a habit. As a data mm-hmm. scientist, yes, I realize there are problems with averages, especially related to this. It might take some people 30 days. It might take some people 90 days, whatever it might be. And he acknowledges that in the book. He, exactly, he, exactly. He doesn't try to dumb it down to, there's this magic number. It's like, yeah. obviously, some things are harder to learn than others. Exactly. But, you know, I, I thought 66 was nice and it gets people asking about the number. So there's some like marketing, hopefully, juice in there as well. But the, the idea behind the challenge is first, you create this habit. You learn data science for at least five minutes each day for 66 days, right? The next thing that you do is you share what you learned on your favorite social platform. So this has a twofold benefit. So the first is you're part of this community. Everyone's helping to keep you accountable, right? If someone sees that you didn't post or something like that, like you feel it. You feel like you're letting other people down because you're part of this thing that everyone is doing. And the the other part of that is you're creating this awesome track record, right? So something that I think a lot of people struggle with is putting themselves out there. And I know, and I think you know this, in 2021, 2022, or going forward, wherever it is, creating a brand for yourself, creating content, creating a portfolio, whatever it is, that's how you, it gives you a huge leg up in landing a job. It gives you a huge leg up in creating opportunities for yourself. So by posting every day and having something really clear to post, it breaks through that that fear of, of this process. And it lets you see this track record. It lets you create this track record. And then afterwards, six, six days later, you can go back and look at how far you've come. I think that that's the other really motivating thing is that a lot of people over a week, over a couple of days, they don't feel like they're moving anywhere, right? Like compared to yesterday, I'm like, what the heck did I do? Okay, I went, I did a podcast or whatever, but it, you know, that's not like, oh, I made this monumental leap in my learning or my career. If you're mm-hmm. looking over the course of effectively two months, that's a different story. You say, oh my goodness, I learned all these topics. I have it really well documented what I did that's going to make me want to continue this or to learn more or really dive in. Or you'll learn that, hey, data science isn't for me, man. I, I didn't like this experience. I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore, which is also okay, right? Yeah, I think that's, a, that's an important part of the process is to commit to something for a period of time. So, you know, you don't need to commit to anything forever, but 66 days, just a couple months of your life. And that's a good amount of time to uh, get experience with something new, see what it's really like. And so I have spoken about data science in the context of Atomic Habits. So um, I did a five minute Friday episode number 442 on that. And um, one of the things that I I love that you're doing with 66 days of data science that I talked about in that episode as well, is this idea of not breaking the chain of learning. And so if, if you wanna be good at anything, well, obviously just continuing at it is the key. It's like, it's, it's so obvious that it's amazing how people fall down on that all the time. So I think an example, it might be in James's book. If not, it, used, it was in his newsletter years ago before he started writing the book. 
was if, if this technique came from uh, Jerry Seinfeld. So if you want to be a great comedian, then obviously the key is to write jokes. <laughs> you need to spend a lot of time writing jokes. So Jerry Seinfeld got into this habit of marking an X on a calendar every day that he wrote, that he did a joke, that he made at least an effort, kind of like you're saying with 66 Days of Data, maybe it'd be something like five minutes of effort writing a joke or actually completing a joke or just doing something. And having that visual of being able to look, look on a calendar without breaking a chain uh, is, is kind of helpful. And you're bringing that idea into the digital world. So with this 66 Days of Data hashtag, you have this continuity across whatever platform you're using, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever, you can look through based on that hashtag, go back through days and see that there's this continuous trend without breaking for 66 days. And any of your followers can see that too. Um, so I think uh, it was a, a brilliant idea to create this and I love how much it's taken off. I have no doubt that it's made an enormous impact, probably difficult to quantify, um, but uh, you know, alongside your YouTube channel, this 66 days of data initiative has no doubt made a, a huge impact uh, on the data science community in the broader world. And I have no doubt that that will only amplify in the years to come. Thank you. Well, you know, I think one of the most important things, especially for me, is that I actually participate in it too, right? It's great if I, if I were to start the challenge and, and tell other people to do it, but I didn't kind of do as, do as I said. Mm -hmm. I, I think that the fact that I'm engaging, the fact that I'm, it's also real, like sometimes it's hard for me to get five minutes in, you know, I have a bunch of meetings, I'm doing X, Y, Z, and it's like, oh, shoot, like, I have to do this, but I'm still going to do it. And I let people know when, when it's like, oh, this was a slippery slope day for me, it is what it is. Um, and I also have to thank the community. For example, you had Josh Starmer on uh, in the previous podcast, and he, he, he did the 66 days of data challenge with me before. Mm -hmm. I, my friend, the data professor has also done it. There have been a lot of people who, who have engaged and bought in and I mean, I am so grateful and, and like completely surprised by the community growth. We have this Discord server where a lot of people, they can ask questions, they can form groups, they can collaborate with each other. And that's an externality of this that I didn't even see as possible. I didn't even see that we could be bringing to, you know, community building in this aspect. I thought of this more as an individual challenge, but oh my goodness, that's like the best part of it now, right? Is you get to be in this learning community where everyone else is like a lot of new beginners, a lot of people are learning this together. Tell me if that isn't rewarding or, or doesn't feel like you're part of something. I mean, the scariest thing is you're, oh, like everyone's ahead of me. I don't know what I'm doing. I, I could never break in because XYZ has already done this. Look how smart they are. Look at their project. No, everyone, you know, you're seeing like, oh, I learned this really basic concept today. Even me, I, I went through the basics in the first, in the first session. Uh, I don't know. I just think that that's so powerful. And again, I'm, I'm really grateful to the admin, all the staff, everyone that's, that's made it possible because, uh, truly, truly one of the, the coolest things that's happened, uh, around my content in the last, in the last year or two. Oh yeah. It's extraordinary. And so how often do you do it? I've been trying to do it two to three times a year. So cool. this year I started it on my birthday, January 4th. We're almost exactly a month in now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll probably do it. I think Josh committed to doing another round with me sometime in the middle of the year. So I'll probably join him or I'll let him kind of have that one and I'll do one a little bit later, November, December type of thing. But cool. 
yeah, it, it's it's a great way to knock the dust the the rust off. And I also found that I was stagnating a little bit in my learning, and it, it's really nice and intimidating to have this accountability with you know however many people are viewing my content, knowing that I am expecting me to post on a certain day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think by the time your episode airs, this episode on March eighth, I think you will have pretty much wrapped up. You'll have concluded your latest 66 and it might day be the last adventure. day actually oh that's really right. interesting or one of the last couple of days yeah um and so, so then for a particular 66 day cadence do you pick a particular theme like at the outset that you're like or, or do you have recommendations for listeners in general whether it's something you do yourself uh or not is it like you know i'm going to get through this book and, uh, you know, I'm going to make some progress, at least a few pages every day kind of thing. So yes and no. I admittedly, for me, I, I haven't been able to put together a cohesive learning plan. That's something <laughs> I would very much like to do. I'm not following mm -hmm. my own advice with the meta learning. Mm -hmm. This time around, I, I'm actually working on an algorithms course, uh, machine learning algorithms course with my friend Jeff Lee. I think he might have been on the podcast, if not an incredible, incredible guest to, to bring on eventually. Um, and I'm so slowly going through each of the algorithms and, and documenting it and, and learning more about it, uh, about them and, and making them more cohesive. But there are days when I can't work on that and I'll watch a video or I'll do X, Y, Z. Uh, a lot of other people, Josh in particular, made a learning plan for each day where people could follow along with him. It does not the surprise goal, me he did that. <laughs> yeah. I, I would love to do that. I just haven't been able to put the time together to do it. Mm -hmm. I do encourage other creators if they want to use the platform or they want to do the challenge with me to do something like that. Mm -hmm. I find that outsourcing for me is a lot easier, uh, but also it can be really great for their <laughs> brand if they're part of something like this. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I've gotten really long on the, the sort of community aspect and having community contributors. There have mm -hmm. been many people that have contributed what their learning plans were and things like that. It doesn't just necessarily have to be from me. It's probably actually more useful if someone a little earlier in their career is sharing their experiences to people who are just a little bit behind them. Super cool. So we've talked a lot about community, something that we touched on right at the beginning of the episode in, in discussion of Harpreet was your Ken's nearest neighbors podcast. And so, you know, you mentioned Josh Starmer just a moment ago. You've also had Ben Taylor, who was a guest on the Super Day Science Show. In fact, quite a few super digital science guests, Karen Jean-Francois, Vin Bashista. So obviously you've had some amazing guests on the program. I'm not surprised given uh, how well known you are in the data science community. So why do you also, <laughs> on top of everything else, on top of your YouTube channel, your job, um, the hashtag that in itself uh, creates a lot of work, at least for intervals of two months at a time, <laughs> Uh, on top of all of that, um, why did you also decide to create a podcast? So admittedly, the podcast, I think, is the child that I love the most. I started interviewing mm. people on my YouTube channel because admittedly, it's the easiest form of content. I talk to someone for an hour. Yeah. I really enjoy it. And I just post it. <laughs> There's very little edits, whatever it might be. But I saw on my, on my YouTube channel that it was actually hurting the analytics pretty bad because the length of the episode, the percent of watch time, the click-through rates were significantly lower. 
but I mm. absolutely loved doing it and people saw the value in it. So I decided to spin off a podcast because I realized the podcast was an unbelievable mechanism to create meaningful human connection and in, in, in my life effectively, mm. right? In, in the times of the pandemic during, during everything that's going on where we're very isolated, I found an unimaginable catharsis in talking to people or like having a structured time where I would talk to people for an hour plus at a time. We wouldn't have any distractions or interruptions, no phones, right? I'd get to learn their story. I'd get to learn what was meaningful to them in their life and in their career. And to me, that's, I mean, that's sort of what, like in a sense, life is all about is connecting with other people and, and gaining their perspectives and bouncing ideas off of them. And so a podcast for me, I was able to, again, structure that into my life and make it a regular thing. But I was also able to share that with thousands of people, right? To me, that is mind blowing that I can get this incredible benefit out of these conversations with people, but other people can listen in and get that same benefit that I had. So I actually made a video a while ago called why I think everyone should start a podcast. And that's the reason why I think that everyone should have more of these dedicated and meaningful conversations because in the world of social media, which, you know, I'm, I'm a part of our, our, you know, we're sending memes every day to our best friend, but we haven't called them up in two months and right. checked in with how they're doing. Right. So uh, I, I just got such an unbelievable, meaningful experience out of talking to people regularly that I, how could I not turn it into something more structured and, and, and try to, you know, get paid to do or, 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 you know, or to grow this thing that I love so much, right? Or make it a bigger part of my life. Now, it will probably not surprise the listener to hear that you are preaching to the choir, Ken. <laughs> uh, I Having a podcast can be an incredibly rewarding experience. If people are interested in trying it out, definitely go for it. As we said at the beginning of the episode, there are all kinds of niches out there, like artists of data science. You know, you could have your own niche and have some really deep, meaningful conversations. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It is often the best part of my week when I get to sit down with folks like you and uh, get to hear the latest and greatest from all different kinds of perspectives, all different kinds of practitioners in the data science field or associated fields. Um, now, the name of the podcast is so incredibly clever. I love Ken's Nearest Neighbors, named after the machine learning algorithm K Nearest Neighbors. And I thought you were oh, so clever, Ken, for having come up with it. And I discovered in my research for this episode that, in fact, you crowdsourced that name. Yeah, well, what's what's more clever, coming up with the name itself <laughs> or outsourcing the work of coming up with a really right. good name? That's the right. question I would ask you. You just mentioned that a few uh, minutes ago, that outsourcing is a thing to do. Yeah, that you'd love to outsource. That is smart. You're right. What's Yeah, what's better, coming up with things or having everyone else come up with everything for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the other benefit there too is that the people, the the viewers, the listeners, they're more a part of the cha the channel, right? They're mm -hmm. more a part of the podcast because they had some input into it. I mean, that that's something you'd mentioned earlier. I, I released all of my YouTube data for people to analyze. There's already mm -hmm. been two or three analyses where I'm going to take those actual insights and apply them to my YouTube channel. They're really good and interesting stuff. And to me, it's a no brainer. It's like, okay, I could sit down and do this, but I get a twofold benefit. I get like, I don't have the time to do the analysis one. And so other people can outsource it. And two, these people, 
I get to celebrate their work, their incredible work that they've done that, that helps me. It's like the ultimate win-win situation, which I am all about. Sounds really good. It'd be fun to be able to do that with your day job. <laughs> We're working <laughs> to, on it. We'll to see. Just, nice. to just, I mean, with anyone's day job, I don't just mean yours in particular, but just kind of, Hey, here's a, an interesting problem. Can you, uh, do you have any ideas out there on how to solve it? Um, well, you know, that's what Kaggle does in a sense, right? Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, not even in a sense. I guess that is explicitly what they do. Um, yeah. So amazing episode, Ken. We've been on quite a journey here already. We have talked about how someone should get started in data science. Um, you know, how you got started in YouTube, what you do as a sports analyst. Fascinating work. And then more recently talking about the podcast of yours, the 66 Days of Data. All right, Ken, so I posted that you were going to be on the Super Data Science podcast on LinkedIn, and it had tons of engagement. So one of the questions was from Ben Taylor, uh, and Ben just simply asked, when are you going to go and visit him? <laughs> I think he's, he's kind of cutting into our serious audience questions here. And then Christina Stathopoulos asked the same thing. She said, when are you going to go and visit her? So there you go, Ben and Christina, you're going to have to chase up with them. <laughs> so probably, I, I can say this publicly, if, if I won't tell Ben to his face, he can only hear it here. So you have one guaranteed <laughs> listener, maybe. Uh, probably be uh, in like mid-April is the goal to travel a bunch of the mainland, get off my island over here. I don't think I'll make it out to New York, but I will try to book a conference or something in New York to see Christina. So nice. There we That'd go. Great. Nice. All right. Well, looking forward to hopefully seeing you uh, when you visit the mainland. Here's a question from Luke Morris, who's a healthcare data analyst. He says, after spatial data proliferation, what's the next frontier of sports data that could blow the dam off countless new developments? Ooh, that's actually a very good question. So the next frontier in my mind is going to be bioinformatic data. So you're looking at heart rate when people are, are playing. Some golfers are wearing whoops now where, they, where they're where they actually like linking that to the TV feed so you can see when they're putting, whatever's happening. I think something really relevant for longer term sports, like again, golf would be blood sugar data, figuring out when to eat, when to like fuel your body based on a lot of these things. The big challenge with that, though, is the players' unions. A lot of player organizations don't want to have as much data collected on them because they think that that'll be used negatively in contract negotiations. Mm -hmm. So if you can figure out how to get around the legal ramifications and, and get volunteers to do that, I think that, that could transform a lot of the games, how we view them and how we understand them. If your heart rate isn't above 150 in the ninth inning, you're not getting your bonus. <laughs> I mean, potentially, you never know. Yeah, you never know. Um, okay, so thank you for that insight. Here's a couple of questions from Arafat Hossein, who's a data scientist at Illinois State University. He asks, how would you rank these skills according to their order of importance for a data scientist? So we've got a few here. Maybe you could just pick you know, one or two that are your favorite. He's got coding and algorithms is his first one, creativity, networking, and communication. Um, so how would you rank these skills according to their order of importance? Coding and algorithms, creativity, networking, communication. I guess you could just, yeah, pick your favorites if, if that's easier. 
I mean, so I don't think you can be a data scientist without coding. Um, What's important, being able to type or being able to read? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're looking at the core of the work, right, I think the one that's most important to the core of the work, like being able to be called a data scientist would be the coding and kind of algorithms, not as much. Um, the The challenge for me with a lot of those is I think that they're all important, but they don't necessarily define what it means to be a data scientist. I think if you would throw problem solving or asking good questions or eliciting information into that, that would be as important, if not more important than any of those other things. I mean, to me, what is a data scientist? It's someone who solves problems using advanced tools, right? And if there isn't a problem solving element as part of your equation, if that's not accounted for somewhere, which I don't think it is necessarily in, in the options that were given, then I don't know if you can call yourself a data scientist on that front. Nice, good answer. Um, do you have advice for a five-year younger Ken? In all of my YouTube videos, that's who it's for. <laughs> but, you know, if anything, I would almost always encourage myself to don't overthink it and and just get started, right? You know, you, you think about how you're going to approach a marathon or climbing Mount Everest, you do it one step at a time, right? The more you think about the large things you want to accomplish, the more you think about the overwhelming nature of the task you have at hand, the more apprehension you have and the less like you are to do it. So yes, you can you can dream and say you want to do those things, but focusing on the process and enjoying the process is really, really important for me. Nice. I love that. And then we've got one here from Serge Massis, and it's also a sports one. So he's asking, what sport has the most sports analytics potential you know potential is an interesting thing i think all sports have effectively unlimited potential in terms of analytics capabilities right on the other hand there are some sports that lend themselves more effectively to data analytics so if you look at baseball right there's discrete outcomes someone throws a pitch something happens stop someone throws another pitch something happens stop right that makes data relatively easy to use compared to the other sports, like basketball, for example, that's dynamic, right? There's a lot of things that happen between when someone touches the basketball or when someone scores to the next score. There's like, in theory, infinite things that could happen in that, 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 that time period. So sports with discrete outcomes, as of right now, are the most progressive in analytics because it lends itself to analysis better. I think when we get new tools, when we get new ways to evaluate data, and we talked about some of the geospatial stuff, that is one really cool way to do that. All of the sports are sort of on a level playing field there. And it's about the creativity and the, the problem solving and, and what types of ways that you can optimize within the sport. I, I think that, again, I, it's not fair to say one is better than the other, but the differences in the data does lend itself in the short term to more success with baseball. I think golf is lagging for some reason. Maybe there's just less interest, but there are disc discrete uh, golf data points. Probably one of the reasons is that that data is not public, whereas baseball data has been tabulated. And like the most advanced baseball data is not public, but a lot of baseball data has been published over time. And so that's something I would actually tell almost every sports organization is open up the data let people analyze it. It'll make the game better. It'll make it more interesting. It'll it'll have better story arcs. It'll make your team play better. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Cool. Great answer, Ken. Thank you. So we're reaching the end of the episode. I always ask at the end, 
for a book recommendation. What do you got for us, Ken? I am currently reading this one. It's a Ray Dalio book, Principles mm. for Dealing with the Changing World Order. Really interesting stuff. It's a framework for understanding economic cycles and rise and falls of economies, which it's a very technical and academic, but I'm super into it right now. I think the way the world is looking, you know, the U.S. is exhibiting a lot of signs of minor decline and China is exhibiting a lot of signs of sort of an ascension. There's a lot of rocky, you know, rubble between both of those outcomes, but it's fascinating to see what's happened with previous economies and how that could be representative of what's happening now. I also recently read this book that I'm recommending to everyone called Sandworm. So it's mm -hmm. about effectively the Russian hacking programs that have uh, been in existence for the last eight to 10 years. And it's really interesting when we talk about Russia's relationship with the Ukraine right now, because Russia has has been testing cyber warfare techniques on the Ukraine since like 2013 or 2012. And mm. now they're practicing more aggressive real world techniques. But I highly recommend if you're interested in cybersecurity, interested in hacking. To me, that's awesome, awesome uh, book to pursue. Uh, I have a bunch of like an entire library of self-help books that I enjoy, but I'll save those for another time. Nice. Yeah. In the meantime, if people can't wait, then there is the, uh, there's YouTube videos on that kind of content, like how I learned to learn. I suspect as some of those books, as well as seven incredible books that transform my habits. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, transform my health. My apologies. Um, those sound like, uh, yeah, videos that people could refer to, to get that, uh, content right away if they're itching for it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ken, for being on the show, having these laughs and sharing all this information with us. Um, if people want to stay up on the latest of what you're doing, obviously your YouTube channel is going to be something to subscribe to. Where else can people follow and stay up to date on what you're doing? Yeah, so LinkedIn is a really good place. I So YouTube is still the best. I respond to almost every comment that I get there. No LinkedIn, way. I am accessible, but I get too many messages to really keep up with. So probably not the best place if you actually want to get a response. Uh, Twitter and Instagram are both G underscore DS. And then I also will dabble in some writing on Medium, uh, mostly just rehashing my YouTube videos and giving them a little search boost. But um, but yeah, those are the best places to to, to learn more. Nice. We will be sure to include all of those YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Medium in the show notes. Oh, yeah. And the podcast, sorry. Oh, yeah. And on YouTube the podcast. or any or... main podcasting platform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. All right, Ken. Thank you so much for being on the program. It's been a delight. And we'll have to have you on again sometime and see what's going on in your world then. Heck yes. Thank you so much for having me. What a great time I had chatting with Ken. In today's episode, he filled us in on his four steps for getting started in data science, namely meta-learning, learning to code, reviewing others' projects, and creating your own projects, then looping back to step one. 
He talked about his preference for the Spider IDE when scripting Python and Visual Studio Code for production development work. He talked about how sports analytics is transforming sports like golf, for example, by guiding the selection of Ryder Cup teams. And he covered how there's a tremendous amount of potential in sports analytics that could most grandly be realized by sports leagues open sourcing more of the data they collect on athletes. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Ken's YouTube and social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 555. That's superdatascience.com slash 555. If you'd like to ask questions of future guests of the show, like several audience members did of Ken during today's episode, then consider following me on LinkedIn or Twitter, as that's where I post who upcoming guests are and ask for your thoughtful inquiries for them. On that note, if you live in the New York area and would like to experience a Super Data Science episode filmed live and ask the guest questions in real time, then come to MLConf NYC, which will be held on March 31st. That's MLConf, the machine learning conference on Thursday, March 31st. In addition to filming a Super Data Science episode live, I'll also be doing a book signing for my book, Deep Learning Illustrated. The first 10 folks in line will get a free copy generously donated by my publisher, Pearson. And after that, I'll be signing them and giving them away at cost. So as cheap as they come. This will be my first conference experience in over two years. And boy, am I ever excited about it. Hopefully, I'll get to meet you in person then. All right. Thanks to Ivana, Mario, Jaime, JP, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another awesome episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.